John 10, verses 1 through 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. We stand to sing Psalm 16a. In a moment, we're going to meditate together upon a theme that emerges from the three scripture passages that we just read together. Before we do so, let us pray. Our Father in heaven, as we have gathered together this evening Uh, to celebrate, to remember, to give thanks for the death of Christ on our behalf. We seek to do so in a way that is in response to your word. And so we pray that as your word is proclaimed in our midst, that you would be in our midst by your Holy Spirit, so this would truly be a means of grace among us, that we might respond in faith and with the life of faith that flows from what you have spoken to us. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, as I spoke of a moment ago at the beginning of our service, there is all manner of controversy in the history of Reformed churches about whether or not it's a good idea to celebrate things like Good Friday, Easter, Christmas, and so on. There are many good reasons it is a worry within the Reformed tradition. Again, there were many abuses of the church calendar at the time of the Reformation. And one of the goals of the Reformation was to free God's people from the burden of that calendar. 
But an interesting part of the history, and a history that many have pointed out in the midst of those debates, is that within the, or among the Reformed churches on the continent of Europe in particular, there was maintained the practice of celebrating what is called the five evangelical feast days. Part of our Reformed heritage is that we then have what you could call a more moderate form of the church calendar. We don't follow it in every detail, but we have maintained the practice of celebrating the five evangelical feast days. Evangelical simply means focused on the gospel, on good news. And the insight of the Reformers is we should keep those that focus on good news that therefore should be celebrated as a feast day. Well, those five are Christmas, Good Friday, Easter, Ascension Day, and Pentecost. So that heritage of having that more moderate form, celebrating these feast days, is why we are here this evening. We are seeking as a church to recover those practices that belong to our tradition of honoring the church calendar in that way. And so this evening, I want to ask in particular, as we are seeking to be part of the recovery of those things in the midst of the Reformed tradition, I want to ask in particular, why would we celebrate the death of Christ? Why is this a good idea of something to do? Why would the day of remembering the death of Christ be included in that list of five evangelical feast days to be celebrated? Well, the main idea for our meditation on Scripture this evening is simply this, that we celebrate Good Friday as a feast day because the cross of Christ was a victory. And that the scriptures clearly speak of the cross of Christ, his death on the cross, as being a victory. One of the most important things to remember about Good Friday is that we celebrate it after Easter. Say, well, no we don't, right? Easter's still coming. Right, but we celebrate it after last Easter. And we celebrate it after last Lord's Day, which was a celebration of the resurrection of Christ. And we celebrate it after the actual resurrection of Christ. We are not here to pretend Jesus is dead. This is not a funeral. We are here, in fact, confident by the promise of God's word that the risen Christ is present with us. We have reason to think he might think it strange if we treated it like a funeral. The risen Christ is here present with us. And in the light of the resurrection, we know because he rose again from the dead that his death on the cross was itself at the time, in its own way, a victory. This is what I want to convince us of this evening from God's word. Uh, Interesting note about this. Uh, I was a little overeager for Easter this week and so I changed the banners too soon. These are supposed to get changed tomorrow. So I was going to change them back, and I had two thoughts. Man, that's a lot of work. I don't feel like it. Second, it fits the theme for the message. It's a palm branch. A palm branch is a symbol of victory. That's why it's associated with the resurrection. What I want to set before you this evening from God's word is that the idea of victory belongs properly as well to Christ's death. All right. Well, let's do this together. Looking at the three passages that we read, I have a few others I'm going to quote, but our focus is on our three scripture readings. First, one of the things I hope you were struck by in our reading of John chapter 10, when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, is that he speaks of himself as going to the cross purposefully. 
He does this to contrast the self-serving shepherds, the thieves, the ones that are just in it to get something for themselves. And he says, he is the good shepherd who gives of himself. But in that language of saying he gives of himself, there is a tone that is striking of the cross being something that Jesus does. It is not just something that happens to him. That is a proper biblical theme as well. Many ways, the scriptures, the gospels, speak of the cross as suffering, as something happening to him. But in John 10, he speaks of it as something he is going to do. He says in verse 15, I lay down my life for the sheep. He's the one doing it. And he does this, he says it not in a despairing tone, not as though, you know, he, he sees what's coming, there's nothing he can do about it, and so he's just going to choose to make it an active thing. Yeah, yeah, I'm doing it, something like that. But he does it confident in that what he is doing is part of winning a victory. He says, beginning, read verse 17 and 18 in particular. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. What beautiful language that Jesus, anticipating his death, says he is laying down his, his life. He emphasizes no one takes it from him. He lays it down purposefully, and he knows that the authority by which he lays it down is also the authority by which he takes it up. This is the first scriptural sign I want to point you to of the cross of Christ being a victory. Jesus went to it purposefully, knowing what he was going to do. Not something just happening to him, but something he was doing. Okay, why was he so confident? that it was a victory. It's very important in the Gospels, we've talked about this many times, to stay in the flow of the story. Don't, pretend in one sense you don't know the end, you don't know where it's going. Stay in the moment, what is being said. In John chapter 10, at that point in his ministry, how does he know he's going to lay down his life? How does he know that it's going to be a victory? How does he know he's going to take up his life again? Well, we could say, He's fully God, so as to his divinity, he knows everything. He knows the eternal plan of the Father that he is willingly taking on, and all of that is absolutely true. But we have to remember that he is also fully human, and that as to his humanity, one of the reasons he knows that this death is going to be a victory is that the Old Testament scriptures promise it. That when they spoke of the suffering and death of the Messiah, they spoke of it as a means by which God was going to win a victory. This is why we read from Isaiah 53. Jesus grew up hearing the public reading of Isaiah 53 in the synagogue. Jesus grew up trusting in these words. As he, as to, as to his humanity, embraced and, and uh, and took on and, and, and was faithful to his calling to be the Messiah, he knew in part what it meant to be the Messiah from the scriptures. And so as he grew, as Luke says, in wisdom and knowledge, he knew from Isaiah 53 that he was called as the Messiah to suffer and die. But he also knew from Isaiah 53 that that suffering and death would be a means of God accomplishing something that was deeply good. Isaiah 53, 
that's already clear in the promise of it, the purposefulness, right? The very fact that it is promised and that he then satisfies that signals there is a good purpose in this. But Isaiah 53 makes it even more explicit. Verse, let's start at verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. So here is this language. Of, it's talking about his suffering and death, but it's also saying this will be the will of the Lord prospering in his hand. And then the beautiful words from which I took the title for this meditation on Scripture, verse 11 Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. He went to the cross with the promise of God in Isaiah 53 that as he suffered and died as the Messiah, he would in that anguish, out of that anguish, see and be satisfied. Not just because of what would happen afterwards, but because of what the cross was doing. He says, By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. So what's the first way we get at this? Jesus goes to the cross willingly. He says, I lay down my life, I take it up again. He does this confident in the promises of the Old Testament. Isaiah 53 is saying, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. And then, third, the New Testament clearly speaks of the death of Christ in this way. Now, what I'm going to do here is simply string together a bunch of New Testament passages. Each one's going to get like one sentence of comment. Ten tops. And as we string them together, what I want you to sense, what I want you to feel building up as we go through the passages, is the tone of victory in the cross of Christ. And something I've wrestled with in many of these passages is many of them simply skip the resurrection. And so we have to make the point, well, when, when Scripture speaks of the death or the resurrection, it includes both, and that is true, but it's fascinating that the language the New Testament uses so often simply speaks of the blood of Christ, of the death of Christ. Ephesians 2 verse 16 speaks of the cross and says this, that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. What does the victory announce there? That through the cross, you are reconciled to God. Sins forgiven, righteous in God's sight. And that through the cross, you are reconciled together. Community is built, made possible by the death of Christ. And the language of Paul here is that both of those things, reconciling to God and being brought together in one body, is through the cross. Victory. Revelation 5, verses 9 and 10. An announcement of what is being sung in heaven even now in God's presence. The singing to which we join our voices even this evening in a moment when we sing, Arise, my soul, arise. This is what is being sung, Revelation 5. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Glorious message of victory. You've ransomed people for God. Forgiveness, restored to fellowship with God. It's also the language of building a people, creating a people. Made them a kingdom and priests. What does that song say is the means by which God did this? 
For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. My point here is not just the theology of what it says, but the tone of it. Victory, accomplishment by the cross of Christ. Our epistle reading was from Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. I I was struck by a verse actually earlier in the reading. Verse 9. No, not Hebrews 9. Hebrews 2, verse 9. Where the writer says this, but we see who him we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. What a beautiful announcement of what Jesus did at the cross. He tasted death for you. Now we say, wait a minute, we know that we are going to die. What does that mean? Well, he tasted it in a way we will not. He tasted it as the penalty for sin, as the unleashing of what our sin deserves. And he did so so that we can then stare at death. And however appropriately fearful it is, to nevertheless say, Jesus has tasted the sting of it, the curse of it for us. And he did that at the cross for you. This we are thankful for. Hebrews 2 continues, verses 14 and 15. This is the part I wanted to focus on. Listen to how the apostle speaks of what Jesus did at the cross. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Now, a couple years ago, I preached that passage on Easter Sunday. Appropriately, when the death is mentioned, we, re- we remember Christ's death in the light of the resurrection. It's the resurrection that announces that his death was a victory. But that passage doesn't refer to the resurrection. It says that by his death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Let us say this clearly, that the New Testament scriptures announce that by Christ's death, he destroyed the devil. Is this not good news for which we are thankful? That by his death, he defeated, he conquered. What does it mean, destroyed the devil? We know the devil remains. It means all of his ability to accuse, all of his ability to deceive the nations, all of his ability to stand before God and point to you as a sinner is all removed by the death of Christ. So that the apostle can simply announce that by his death, do you hear the language of victory? He defeated the devil. Revelation 12, in fact, Uh, says the same language. Revelation 12, the great uh, depiction of the dragon, the great dragon, which we're told is the ancient serpent, it's the devil, the dragon fighting Michael and his angels, this great spiritual war, and when the victory over the dragon is announced, it's announced on these terms. Revelation 12, verse 11, and they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. That the blood of Christ continues to be the means by which God's people conquer evil, fight against spiritual darkness, 
that we can say to the darkness that arises of fear and doubt of accusation and guilt, we can say that by Christ's death, all of that is satisfied. That by Christ's death, we are ransomed to God. That by Christ's death, he has tasted death for us. That by Christ's death, the devil himself is defeated. And all of that is the language with which the New Testament announces what happened when Jesus died. Now, to be sure, all of that is in the light of the resurrection. But we hear these things, we celebrate these things in the light of the resurrection. We don't pretend it hasn't happened. It has happened. And that affects, that determines how we receive and thank God for all of these things. This I want to set before you is why it is in the wisdom of the church as one of the five evangelical feast days that we celebrate to include Good Friday. This is a solemn and joyful remembrance, indeed even a celebration of what Christ has accomplished for us. The risen Christ is here present with us by His Spirit. And so we remember and thank God for what He has done as a victory for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in, life, Father in heaven, there is much in this life that is fearful that tempts us to doubt, to question, to turn from you, that tempts us to go down paths of rebellion and destruction, to throw up our hands and say, what is the point? There is much that is dark and frightening. And so we praise you for the clarity of your word, from the promises of the Messiah in the Old Testament, from the words of our Lord Jesus Christ about laying down his life, to the many announcements of the cross of Christ throughout the scriptures. For how clear your word is that Jesus has won for us a great victory. That death has been sanctified. That it is no longer the penalty for our sins, but rather our entrance into eternal life because Jesus has tasted death on our behalf. Oh Father, we, we plead with you to fill our hearts with faith and confidence in these things. Enable us to re- receive them by faith that we might show forth in all of our living that we belong to you and that we have been reconciled to you by the blood of Christ on our behalf. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.